Uh, good morning, noon or night, everyone, depending on when you're listening to this. Kind of a long one this week, so I'm just going to do a quick intro and a quick outro. Won't take too much of your time. Promise. As promised, though, part two of two different interviews this week, both revolving roughly around the news, the dang news, Lisa Tilly, who we talked to last week, and Sean Vessel, who we talked with roughly two weeks ago. It just so happened that a significant portion of each conversation ended up talking about the institution of journalism in general, because we're all big nerds, big time news nerds. You might can leave, but you can never really get it out of your blood, in my case. I'm also noticing that I'm very, very breathy. I have some new equipment. Uh, I don't really know how to use, clearly, because it sounds like I'm doing ASMR. That is not the intent, unless you like it, in which case I'll do more of it. This is going downhill real quick. I'll wrap this up. So, going to start with Lisa Tilly, going to throw back in the last part of the interview from last week just so you can catch up because it kind of flows sort of uh, pretty seamlessly from one topic to the next just so you can remember where we're at and then we'll jump into part two of Sean right after her. I'm Luke Baumgarten and this is Range. Episode 14, The Damn News! And I remember calling my editor, to ducking into a doorway as tear gas, or I'm sorry, at that point they weren't using tear gas. This was like pepper balls and mace, but it feels yeah. sort of the same. Um <laughs> And I'm in this doorway and I'm, and I'm calling her and I'm saying, this is what's going on. And there are like these, you know, it sounds like a war. And I just remember her saying something to the effect of what is with people out there? (laughs) And, and I just was like, what? Like in this moment, I'm not asking you to judge the, what I'm telling you. I'm asking you to trust that I'm here on the ground with these people watching what's happening, standing on both sides of the crowd, observing and interviewing people. And, 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 and what I'm telling you is, is that there is nothing happening to this group of agitators, that, of, including Joey Gibson, that keeps coming into the crowd to see if you can get anybody to punch him. Nothing happens to him. But this, these thousands of people, you know, again, men and women with children on their shoulders are getting blasted by pepper spray it was just this moment where i was like they don't understand and to me this might not be worth me covering anymore because they're not paying me enough to be here if they're not going to listen to what i'm trying to tell them yeah well that's perfect two two things that i want to touch on uh one how hard it is to be a journalist in general period freelance journalist and this idea so one of the things i've heard you talk about really um eloquently as eloquently as you can get on Twitter, I think you've done, <laughs> is like the idea of par- journalists parachuting in. Mm. So there's people, for people that aren't maybe super acquainted with the, the ins and outs of regular journalism, it's like people like Leah, you are like based in a place, Portland, Oregon, focused really heavily on the West and then the Pacific Northwest, trying to understand a specific subject area area like you know extremism or just the far right whatever and doing really deep work on that and there's there's this other tendency in journalism that's like you've got the reporter who's maybe a staffer or in the case of like you know NBC News it's like Miguel Almaguer who is based in Los Angeles and just flies wherever they want him to to post up for a day and they're that reporting on these 
wild things as they happen. And so, and you've been really eloquent in saying that like, when you parachute in, you're not really understanding what you don't get, you're not seeing what we journalists who live and breathe this stuff are seeing. So can you talk about that a little bit and and how problematic that is to the national discourse and maybe how problematic it is to getting people on the East coast to really understand what's happening in places like Spokane and Portland? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's partially due to my own frustrations sometimes when I see um, a, a reporter flown in to cover Portland protests, for example, which has been a very hot thing in the last few years to, to helicopter people in. Um, yeah. And knowing that there are a lot of freelance journalists here that are perfectly capable of telling the story. So it sort of sends this message, I think, that people in your own town can't do it as well as people from New York. And so, yeah, I've been really vocal about that because, you know, you see time and time again, these national stories come in and it's like, I can write the lead in my head. You know, they call it Little Bay Root. It's a name that people (laughs) gave Portland, you know, because of its protest culture. They also call it Portlandia. It's like, nobody calls it that. Nobody, (laughs) literally nobody calls it Portlandia. You can get punched if you call Portland Portlandia. But they call it Spokompton. Right, exactly. So, I mean, and it's like, it's not to say that like, there is no place for national media in a story. And I think that that's one thing that is really difficult is like, journalists just have to do their jobs. And a lot of times you don't get to choose what you're working on. But right. there are really capable people who can who can further the story who are more well-sourced, who can say, maybe we don't need to talk about the whole Little Bay Root story, you know, from when George H.W. Bush was president. Yeah. Um, in talking about protest culture, maybe we'll save that graph instead to talk about what's going on with the police union or, you know, whatever. So, um, so I think that like there, and we really saw this in a big way with the, you know, the 2016 standoff at the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge that, you know, there were people that were coming from all over the world to cover that. And, um, you know, really unprepared for the very, tough winter that people have out there, you know, not bringing (laughs) jackets, driving their cars off the road on the ice and like not having, you know, proper uh, boots to wear because it's super, super, I mean, it's, it's rural is not even an appropriate enough word for how far out there it is. So, so I think it was, that was another example where, and then you saw this sort of parade of takes by people who maybe lived in Oregon at some point in their lives 20 years ago or whatever. And um, it just, I don't know. I'm not saying that it's all invalid. I just think that we talk a lot about media and like where it's at now and, and there's not enough jobs. You know, I often compare to like my students that media right now feels like watching like a youth soccer game. Like you watch the kids kind of <laughs> all run in a pack of like 12 people over to the ball and then they all run. It's like, <laughs> and so what I've tried to do as a freelancer is like recognize everyone is running to the story over here. So what are the thousands of other stories that aren't being told? And I think yeah. that's the thing that like most readers don't know is that like every staff reporter you know, for every one story they do, there's a hundred that they can't get to because there's yeah. so few jobs, but they're also, you know, this model that journalism is built on that, that it, that runs on clicks and things like that. Um, it has skewed 
what we see in the, in the news. So, so yeah, I mean, I try and be a little bit of an asshole sometimes on Twitter and say <laughs> like, Hey, New York, because I feel like they can take it. Like, yeah. you know, the whole media world is centered in this place and, you know, they get paid a lot for what they do to, you know, regurgitate the hard work of reporters like me and, right. you know, people like Chad Sokol at the Spokesman Review and Daniel at the Inlander and yep. um, Jason Wilson at the Guardian. Like, I'm thinking of all the people that were on that Matt Shea story and what all of us as a group realized is that it's probably better that we all build off of each other's work yeah. and try instead of scooping each other all the time. So, right. so I think that that was like an example that media can work and it can, it can be, you know, this whole competition thing in media. I mean, I know, you know, that from when we were at the Inlander, that was like a big deal to me. Oh, yeah. It's crap. Like, I don't even understand why it, it, I don't, nobody cares. Like only media people care about like who got the story first. So get the story first. And then it's about doing the, the story best, I think, and, and right. doing it in the most thoughtful and human manner. So that's my soapbox on that. <laughs> well, right. And, and it's partially, it's like a little bit like owners versus workers a little bit where it's like, it would actually be best for all reporters to like work collegially together because you get better journalism. But if you're the person thinking about who's, you know, it, the, the marketing of a given paper within a given media ecosystem, it is better to be the first one out with every single story to, so that you can sort of market yourself as the, the place where news breaks or whatever. Sure. And I think that that's, I think you're right. I think it's, you know, the reason I got into journalism is because I wanted to help like it think of journalism like a utility. It's a service that all people yeah. should be engaging with and understanding so they can help society become the place that they want it to be. Um, so I'm just wholeheartedly not interested in, you know, of course, like I want media outlets to stay in business, but like, I think that that mission has to be reader centric. It can't, it can't be, you know, marketing centric or, you know, branding centric or whatever. Right. I'm terrible with all that stuff. <laughs> totally. And, and I think you got to think that in some ways it's probably just easier. Like the parachute model from an editor's perspective, not, not necessarily like, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't even know what tra kind of an angle. I, I think about how hard it was to cultivate a stable of really reliable freelancers when I was an editor, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard in Spokane. Uh, it would, I can only imagine how tough it would be to sort of cultivate that you know, in a topic-by-topic -topic way at a national magazine, but then also on a region-by-region -region basis. You know, so it's like, maybe it's just a little easier to be like, okay, cool. This is the guy that kind of... He's our staffer and he lives in Denver. So I'm just going to send him over to Portland to cover this rather than being like, okay, cool. Who's our who's our stringer on the ground who knows about the, the right and is in Portland? Okay, cool. Call Leah right. and see what you've totally. got on that story. Yeah, you're right. You know, and it's interesting. Um, when I was doing a lot of writing for the Washington Post... You know, I was able to work with some of their people that are the helicopter people, and I saw why they were. There was one guy that I've written a few stories with who's covered every major mass shooting since Columbine. Every single one oh has been there God. on the ground. Wow. And so you do see that there's like a real institutional knowledge that when somebody can yes, they're helicoptering in and maybe they don't know, you know, Las Vegas, um, like someone like me would know or a local reporter, but they do have this, you know, 20 year knowledge of, of, of these things and can draw parallels, which could then forward reporting, which can then, you know, he's going to be the guy that's going to know which 
cop to talk to and which, you know, reports are happening and what federal agencies are going to be called in that, that the local reporter might not know. So I think in that, you know, in those situations, like I was felt really lucky because um, I felt like they would often select people who had, you know, um, a variety of skills that could all contribute to the best possible story. So, but that's, you know, that's the Washington post and, and like the New York times, those are huge, huge staffs and not everywhere is like that. Oh yeah. Increasingly though, that's like with media consolidation, they're more and more getting like that. So I don't know. Did we just, do you think you and I, Leah, just figured out like a, a a synthesis going forward to save local (laughs) and national journalism where it's like, get your staffer who's been to every school. God damn. Maybe like something other than school shootings. Cause it's depressing to think of how the institutional knowledge that guy must have. Oh my God. I just was like, yeah, I didn't even have time to ask him like, wait, why are you, why are you doing that to yourself? But I think that, but, but then partner that guy with like somebody like you who like knows about Portland. Right. Right. Yeah. And I thought that that worked out really well, but then, you know, in other cases, like there are sort of these nightmare scenarios on the local level that you've got, you know, uh, like one person covering the state capital of Washington for the Seattle times. So how many stories is he not getting to, you know, you've got stuff like that where, where it's like, how, how, how is that okay in the eyes of readers? Like everybody yeah. wants to see the same, you know, take, like they want to, you know, make their media rounds and go to everyone to see their take on the same story. But like, they're not seeing all those other stories that these like really, really smart journalists just can't get to because there just aren't enough readers or not enough subscribers, not enough, you know, whatever institutional backing to cover society the way that, that we used to, you know, and I hate to be like an, I don't want to be like a, oh, everything used to be better the way that it was because like in journalism, you know, journalists are also at fault for not exposing maybe the problems of society that we're seeing on this really big level right now, things like racism and, you know, policing and all these other issues that have come up, you know, journalism has had a place in that too. So I think that like, there's a diversity conversation happening there too. So I'm I'm not saying like, we need to just go back to the way that it was, but my God, like, you know, a very dear mentor of mine is is Bill Moreland, who was at the Spoken Review for a really long right. time. And he will tell me these stories about, well, I was, you know, we took a plane to fly over the uh, Montana Freeman standoff when that was going on. And I was just like, there was a day when the Spoken Review was like, hey, Bill, why don't you just go out on like a two week junket to cover this stuff? Like, I just can't envision yeah, right. it happening anymore. So of course, like, I would love to see that happen again. But that's, I mean, in a way on, on people, on readers to demand that. And we've just seen media just so gutted by social media. Well, and it's, yeah. So what you're saying is the, the only way that somebody like Bill Moreland could become the, and it's, and probably this is like all like he's, he retired a while ago. So like people probably don't even remember who he was maybe in Spokane, but he was such a Titan of investigative journalism mm-hmm. that, but it, he was supported by a newspaper that could put him out on a plane or give him just two weeks to go report deeply, deeply report on something. And that doesn't exist anymore. What? And then you're saying also our buddy Joe is the, the Olympia reporter for the Seattle times. So thinking about the way that these, what, you know, I think I still think that, and for marketing purposes, the Seattle Times still sort of puts itself up as like the institutional Pacific, the big, the grand dame 
the New York Times of the in, of the Northwest, right? The the regional paper of record, when it as when in fact it's been hollowed out to the point that they only have one Olympia reporter, right? Yeah, it's wild. Everything? Yeah, I mean it's I mean of course like Jim Camden also does stuff that gets picked up in the Times, but also in the Spokesman sure. and stuff. But yeah, I mean it's it, you've got. Yeah, people that we know really well that you're like, you want a guy like Joe O'Sullivan to be able to do what he does, you know, but right. he's just covering his bases to make sure that readers are informed right. and can like, you know, be get unbiased news. It's that you you can't do both when you're like this, the the lone beat reporter exactly. for an entire legislator slater and do deeper stuff like exposing corruption or whatever it's just like you you can't get to it. you can only one you're only one person yeah there's a really brutal story uh, about thinking about you know again like my perception is and still is even though it's kind of this this story killed it for me a little bit was like the seattle times is the is like the big paper, the paper of record for the Northwest. I helped start this little nonprofit called Terrain. It's kind of a big deal in Spokane now. I would love to get a story about Terrain in the Seattle Times one day. So I waited and I've, I pitched a few things over the years as like quasi PR role. And then for our 10th anniversary, for an event that was probably going to draw 10,000 people around art in Spokane, I pitched every editor I could find at the Seattle Times and only one wrote me back and they were like, basically like, sorry, we don't go east of the Cascades unless there's a bomb. Wow. Oh, Luke, I'm sorry. (laughs) Sucks. That sucks. I mean, it's just, I mean, there's so much in that that breaks my heart because I think that, you know, sometimes you see the way that places are portrayed is because of the way that they're portrayed in the media. Like how, how surprising would that be to the Seattle reader to learn that in Spokane, it is not all Matt Shays, that there are an incredibly mobilized art movement and music movement yeah. there that, that is unparalleled anywhere that I've been. So that is such a bummer to learn, but at, at the same time, it's like, I, they just probably don't have the staff to do it. Yeah. So yeah. So then who, how do you get it? Like, do you just leapfrog over them and pitch the story in the New York times? That's probably what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that you've got a connection there, I might be hitting you up. <laughs> All right. Last thing before I let you go. Um, can you talk a little bit about, because again, we've sort of gotten into the like institutional hollowing out that's made it tough for institutions to exist and persist. What's it like for freelancers? Like, what's it like to be you hmm. in general? Uh, it's, um, I mean, there's a lot there. Like, uh, I mean, as a freelancer, like, so I'm in my seventh year of doing this full time. And um, I think I still hustle like I'm just out of school. Like I'm I'm just busy <laughs> all the time. And and I think part of that is that, you know, you know, you've known me longer than most people. Like I'm just really into journalism. I just like it a lot. <laughs> you know, it's like my hobby, it, but also my job. And I feel I feel lucky about that, but I learned pretty quickly, like if I was gonna eat. I had to like get really scrappy with what I could do. So like when I left the Inlander, I was predominantly a culture writer and had, you know, a journalism degree and could do investigations and that kind of thing and and did for the Inlander. But, but what I learned really quickly was like, I needed to just be able to say yes to whatever editors needed from me. Oh my God. Yeah. So I had to learn to be the fastest breaking news reporter that I could be, you know, and I had to learn to, 
to do other things. You know, I had to learn to make a podcast. Like I, I never <laughs> thought that I would do things like that. So anything that I've done with my job is because of that is just a true hunger for journalism and, and for storytelling, but also just literally like trying to make sure that I could cover my bills. And I think that's a little bit sad, but I've also chosen to like really specialize on, on the West. And I've never felt really compelled to run to New York or LA or San Francisco or whatever. Like, I just don't really like cities. I'm not a big city person. And so I always felt like it was a little unfair that I had to like homogenize who I was in order to be in media. And so my goal was just to be able to do good reporting, deep reporting on the West. Now, of course, four years ago, um, I had an interest in extremism just because I, at that point was writing a lot about fringe cultures. Um, and I think that that just kind of fit in, but I, found that I had a deep interest in the ideologies of right-wing extremists and militia groups. And all of a sudden it was just like a real, um, real wormhole for me that I did want to tumble down. So that's kind of what I've been doing. And so, I mean, as far as like, if somebody wanted to freelance today, like I, I do always say to people, I think it's really important that you have a staff job at some point, because I think I was, you know, the culture editor and music editor and whatnot at the Inlander, I, it, like you, fielded a lot of freelance pitches. So I knew what made a good pitch. I knew what I wanted to see. So like I pitch stories now based on what I know editors need and what they might want um, and that kind of thing. But I also offer that I'm, you know, fast, accurate, and I am diverse in my coverage. So, uh, so that was kind of what I offered right out of the gates. Um, now I try to you know, specialize quite a bit more. I think I have like this, you know, beat that I've kind of decided to cover, but it's a beat that I gave myself. So I think that that's another thing that freelancers can do is you can, if you want to be, you know, the person that covers the food scene of Portland or the West or whatever, um, you don't just sort of work on that. And I think that that's possible. There's no, the thing I do like about freelancing is there's really no right or wrong way to do it. You know, I know a lot of people who do freelance journalism that also are copywriters or they take on other jobs. I don't do that because I don't want to. And so I, I just don't like it. I, it's not for me. So knowing that about myself, like, I just have to make it work then doing journalism. So it just means a lot of hustling. And it also means a lot of just saying what, what my price is, you know, and you have to just say, I can't write for below this rate. So. Oh, totally. Yeah. I think I answered your question there, but I feel like I could like talk like for like an hour about freelancing. No, 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 totally. And you, you did. And it's, it's, it's just, it gets into, so I, this is like the, I, this is a, like the hundredth time I've told this story. I can't remember how many times I've told it into this podcast. So uh, I apologize. But I had this conversation with my dad where he and my mom clawed their way into the middle class, uh, but partially by like my great uncle's like glass business, like installing mm. windows and doors in Cheney, right? And your, your first gig was at the Cheney Free Press, actually. I interviewed you, your you, parents. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit, man. Uh, 
Spokane is not a really the smallest place in the world, guys. Promise. Um, basically, what you're talking about is you are both a reporter and you're like a small business. You're like a small business owner of one, right? It's like exactly. your job to figure out how to feed yourself. Whereas if you're a employee at a company, you just get to figure out how to do your job, and then you ca- and based on how well you do, you get to keep that job, and then you get to cash your check and whatever. That's that is the uh, transaction that takes place. And I asked him, I was like, dude, would you have just, if you could like have created, clawed your way out of, you know, where you started and, and created now this retired life that you've got, would you have owned a business or would you have just installed windows and doors? And he kind of spent some time hemming and hawing and he eventually was like, you know what? Yeah, I would have just like, all the stuff that I liked was the problem solving of just putting in windows and doors, making them fit, making people happy, uh, doing good work and, and making, and making people's lives a little bit better. Mm. And, and I was like, kind of how, and like I left the Inlander because I couldn't pay my bills anymore. And Mm. so it's like, if, and I think I don't, I don't think I would have left journalism, uh, if I wasn't, if I couldn't, could have paid my bills. And so Mm. I like, I think everything you've said, it's like a slightly, obviously a different story. And you took a path where, you were trying to pay yourself with journalism this whole time, which is like, holy shit, the balls on you to, or the, I don't know, the, the gender neutral balls on you <laughs> to like, to like gut that out. Cause it's brutal. I'd like, I, yeah, it is. I mean, it's a, it's a, you, you get real used to being rejected and like not taking <laughs> it personally for sure. But you know, I mean, another thing I think that is different about my approach is that I do view myself as an artist number one like i i do i and i think it's what makes my stories maybe feel slightly different but it's also just trying to you know it was it was reading great literary not nonfiction that made me that was what i wanted to emulate just like somebody who picks up a a guitar because they saw you know a great you know whatever led zeppelin solo Uh, and so i think that approaching it like that there was a moment, I think probably a couple years into my freelancing career where I stopped <laughs> like belly aching about the fact that it wasn't working. Like I, I just realized I, it has to work yeah. because this is the only thing that I can do. Like, this is what I'm programmed to do. I I'm programmed to write and whether mm. that's writing podcasts or long form stories yeah. or, you know, books or whatever, like that's, what that's just what I do. Just like, you know, my husband is a drummer and he just plays drums. Like he just has to play drums and he is a woodworker and has to, you know, build furniture and things like that. It's just that. So like, you know, this is a little bit more philosophical, but like we've set up our lives in a way that, you know, our art comes first and that is, Um. it's at the the center of everything for us. And, um, people who are friends with us and family, they understand that or they don't. And, and it sounds really brutal, but it's like, that's just, that's just how it is. And so I think that when I had that realization of like, this is what I do, I have to put a price tag on it that values that for me. And I also feel really restricted if I'm in like a beat job where I only can cover so many things in so many geographical areas. Like, you know, there are stories that frankly I've helicoptered in on, like, you Uh know, because I want to go right in the desert for a while or whatever. But what I try and do is like stay for a while and try, you know, and be able to do that. So, so I think, you know, that's the way that it's worked for me. Um, you know, do I still have student loans? From Gonzaga, absolutely. <laughs> you know, are there times that I'm like, going to be a tough to to pay my bills? But when I stopped equating 
my financial portfolio with my self-esteem, things started to really kind of like click for me. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. Well, I'm tempted to leave it there, but I do have one final question and it's maybe too nerdy, uh, but it's like, it's model based where it's like, what do you think of somebody like Matt Taibbi or all the people that are like jumping into Substack right now? Like, have you thought about just cultivating a patronage model as opposed to like an editor pitcher relationship model? No, because I um, started a newsletter that I ran for like two months a few years ago and I promptly shut it down because I saw <laughs> who was paying for it. And who oh, was paying for it was all people who were anti-Bundy. And oh. what I realized was ethically... I felt weird about that. Like the, the like at the corner. I mean, journalism is eth- it's it, this is this thing that I feel like like all of America needs to like be educated on is journalism ethics. And like, yeah. what I realized was is like there's no way anyone would ever see who was paying for this list. But if they did, it could be construed that the work that I was doing was being paid for by people who wanted to see a certain perspective. So I just yeah. felt I felt wrong about that. Plus, the idea of like personal branding is like not why I got into this. And it's, it's not, it's not fun to me. Like that is, uh, (laughs) you know, I think that some people want to be like a writer to like, you know, have like a a profile. Like all I want to do is like have a big enough profile to just keep getting more work. Like that's, I just want to work. I know that's weird, (laughs) but like, I just want to keep being able to like work and perfect and get better and push myself. So to me that, I mean, maybe one day, like I'll change my tone on that and, and it'll be a thing, but like the idea of like running an Instagram and like, you know, market, it's just like, it's, I, all I want to do is like write words on a page and like, I'd be very content with a pen and paper. So I don't know. Well, it's so, it's so fascinating to hear you say that because like one, my, and it's really uh, this, the story you just told is really kind of brutal to me because I've always thought of this whole patronage model as an easier way to get. It's like, okay, I'm going to cut most of this. One of the the, the only close. <laughs> this is the beauty of podcasting. Uh, the the closest I ever got to getting fired when I was a staff writer was because I sort of like tweaked to the nose of one of the paper's biggest advertisers. Oh yes. And so, uh, it was a casino and it was the dumbest thing I probably wrote. Cause I was like, it was probably 2 AM. It was the last thing I wrote in a best of oh, wow. an inland Northwest guide. And when that advertiser called up to express their, uh, discontent with w- this dumb thing that I wrote that I don't even feel strongly about. Right. It was like something about how it's like all of our grandparents were spending their retirements out at this casino, whatever, something dumb. <laughs> and you know, in hindsight, not the best thing to put into a best of article, but also I didn't want to be writing that best of article anyway. <laughs> but it was like, I was, I've always felt like, Oh my God, I can actually write off as a culture writer at the time. Prim- primarily, I could probably write all the hit pieces I want on all of the tiny little, you know, music venues that couldn't couldn't afford to advertise in our newspaper, but I could not even take the dumbest most glancing of shots at the one of the biggest institutions in our area. So it's mm-hmm. it's actually ethically problematic on both sides. Yeah, yeah, for sure. God, I have man, I have so many inlander memories of that <laughs> same kind of thing where you know it, it's it's tough too because like I think in that job we were we were always just like 
had so much to get done that we were like totally. cranking it out sometimes and you'd say stuff sometimes you didn't mean and then you're like oh shit now i gotta stand up for this but yeah, yeah i mean on one hand I, the, the the patronage model allows people to get over all these barriers that there are in journalism like you know sure i got my journalism degree at gonzaga but that is not a well-known school for journalism at right. all so it's like not, it's not the university of oregon it's not like yeah, it's, not, it's not columbia or whatever yeah. like it's it's not going to get me really anywhere but you know there i recognize that there are like people of color who can't get into journalism because they don't have a degree or whatever so like all of these things that that like are barriers to getting into journalism, I think are taken away when you have like this patronage model. And there are really yeah. great writers and journalists who, who started that way, who had the newsletter or started the website and became a trusted, you know, alternative independent source. I think there's just, there is real value in that. I think just where I'm at is like, um, it, it just feels like it's, um, that's, it's not mine. I don't need, I don't need, I don't need to do that, nor do I want to. Yeah, like, totally. You know, of course, like I want people to be like, oh, cool. We wrote a thing about, you know, X, Y, Z. Like, yeah. great. That's great. But I just don't want it to become like, you know, a, a, like a profile thing, I guess, if that makes sense. Well, this is an awesome dovetail because Sean and I talked a lot about like uh, di diversifying newsrooms and how it's, you know, how can you even do it when, like you're mm -hmm. saying, you need a degree in journalism to get a job at a newspaper and how many, you know, like what, what sort of barriers are there to even going to college if you're a person of color in a right. lot of places. So whatever. Uh, but it's also really, it, it kind of sounds like what we're both sort of orbiting around is like, what's the, you're going to have to be flexible as a writer to find a model that allows you to do whatever you do as ethically as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that like we are in this moment that is, you know, tough for so many reasons, but I think like the optimistic side of it to me is like, you can make your own path. When I graduated from college, like I was told you have to have a, a four-year degree, you've got to get an internship somewhere where you will not be paid. And then you've got to work your way up, you know, and be punched around forever by <laughs> a series of editors, you know, until finally someone decides like you've, you know, been hazed appropriately. And then you <laughs> <laughs> and be trusted to cover news. And to me, like, I've realized that path is arbitrary. It's not how it's done anymore. And I still, still, I've been saying this for like 10 years, but I still think that like journalism should be a two year degree. And then you go uh, yeah. your other two years doing the job because I mean, I can think of tons of interns we had at the Inlander that had, you know, fancy degrees that couldn't even pick up the phone and talk to somebody. So like, right. I think that like you have, you make journalism by doing it, by learning it on the ground and like realizing that there's no playbook to, to doing it right or wrong. There's a way to do it ethically, but yeah. like you just have to, to do it. So, you know, I think that, that I just realized for me, like my path is different. You know, I'm, not like a tough guy, you know, like court reporter or whatever. Like I'm, I'm a person and I'm kind of weird and sometimes feel like the dumbest <laughs> person in the room, but that's what I got. And so I got to work with it and so I do it my way. <laughs> oh man. That's awesome. Well, Okay, let's leave it there. This was so awesome. Thank you. And part Dude, hopefully yeah. this felt like uh two buddies catching up. Because, I know, man. Uh, that's kind of what it was. We haven't we haven't chatted. I was so looking forward to this because I knew exactly that this is what it would be. 
<laughs> it's <laughs> if I, yeah, it feels like we were uh, we haven't seen each other in a decade, maybe, but we also it felt like just like on tiptoes looking over your uh, the the wall of your cubicle at the Inland Derby, yes, talk, yes. talking shit. So just talk, talking shit. I <laughs> thank you honestly for having me, and I really appreciate you know. That I, I just this was a great conversation. I hope it's helpful and I hope it's not too hard to edit. <laughs> well Well, it was hard to edit because I'm a psychopath about that sort of thing, not because uh Leah was anything less than totally on point and very directed in her answers. For any of you interested in my self-care though, I have gone from like 10 hours of editing per episode to like four, I think, on this one maybe, or something like that. So it's getting better. One other thing to note, uh I'm not saying I was the reason, and she actually later confirmed to me that I wasn't the reason, <laughs> but uh, a mere few days after I mentioned Substack to Leah, she started a Substack of her own, so look for a link to that in the show notes as well. Okay, let's slide right on into part two of this. Sean Vestal, things to look for uh, as parallels between what Leah was talking about and what Sean's talking about. Journalism as a utility kind of comes up in an oblique way, and the diversity issue, holy shit, has always been hopefully won't always be, but certainly still is a real issue in journalism. Sean gets into that a little bit as well. Part two of Sean Vestal coming up. Maybe we could end with Ron Howard voice. This was not the end. I want to unpack a little bit because again, what, like what power do, and does anybody have even a columnist who's got some, uh, got some clout can get, you know, can write something and get a hundred people either mad or happy or both at him and whatever power I have. Like, I do think that if there's going to be lasting change to the extent that institutions continue to exist, we have to decolonize those institutions. We, I just got done talking to the the people from the bail project, the need to massively decarcerate the entire country, but within Spokane County, where I might be able to like shout into a void and have in here shout back. Can't count on the sheriff to do that. Can't count on the current prosecutor to do that. Can't even really count on the police chief and, you know, uh, this would be another whole other hour conversation, but like Ron Howard voice, it became a whole other hour long conversation. Wait for it. I don't even feel like I can really count on my city council right now to have be forcefully on my side. So I guess all we can do is help these bail disruptors just grind the system to a halt because our prosecutor is going to arrest as many people as possible. We just got to make sure that whatever. Do you see any hope for the institution of journalism to do a little bit of what you suggested and actually hire black people and and other BIPOC folks to just at least put other voices in these positions of, of influence. Um, I do think that there's hope for it. I do. I don't necessarily mean by that, that I think we're in a great moment for that now. And so I think it, what it's going to take is lots of individual people at institutions to get right about it. And as someone who was in a hiring position here in Spokane for a while, years ago, when I was first here, I was an editor and, um, and we talked about hiring more people of color and then did nothing. <laughs> yeah. we, did, we did nothing. We just went to convention sessions about it or whatever. We read numbers. We looked through the, the applications that came in and, and said, you know, people of color don't really apply for jobs here, which is true broadly, generally, I'm not saying none, but yeah. it's the, it's an extra challenge in Spokane for sure. And knowing that we just kind of 
moved ahead and kept hiring white people completely. So I think it's um, awareness to the next step. I think it's a commitment that has to be, has to come from people at the, at the very top. And I think it is like so many of where most of the most hopeful things kind of live right now in the country. It's going to be forced by young people. Yeah. I almost hesitate to say this, but there are young people in our newsroom right now. And for the first time in a while, it's the last couple of years has been kind of common for there to be people in their twenties, people relatively close to their college experience in the newsroom at the spokesman when they're, that was for a while, like just, there was just almost none of that. It was like people were losing their jobs. Those of us who were still there were kind of clinging and yeah, for a variety of reasons, that's changed. Not all of it's great. They were hiring the young people for lousy money, but, um, right. But they come in with attitudes about this stuff that are, they're, they're far less, I don't know, forgiving of bullshit about that yeah. kind of stuff. You That's know, awesome. they come in like newsrooms have to confront these problems and deal with them. And I'm like, Hey, you just got here. You know, I'm, I'm the <laughs> white guy. Like, but that's what it's going to take. Right. Those of us who are there, we have to commit. We have to be better. We have to stop letting ourselves off the hook. Stop saying, Oh, we gave it this little bit of an effort. And yeah, that's what we got. Right. But the truth is they'll do it better than we're doing it, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that I'm not across the board convinced that it's changing the quality of the news, but the local television news stations are a lot more diverse than they used to be. Yeah. And I hope, I don't know, I just, I I kind of have given up on KHQ, but it does seem like there are some interesting conversations happening at KXLY and- And maybe it, I can't tell about cram. I've been actually, I've been trying to like, and it's kind of painful sometimes. I posted about like how somebody did like a, like a basically did a fact check on if there's a 5G antenna in your disposable masks on cram. And I, was, I don't know if you saw that post. Did see it. Maybe I saw you post about I, it. Is I, posted, that right? okay. so I was like, I, I was like, it was just like, maybe I'll watch the news tonight. And then. I see this. Like, That's such a weird expression of the thing that I can't stand anymore, which is one of the things that journalists do is sort of define a boundary a little bit. Uh, yeah, and it's, what ex- they're what's acceptable. boundaries, obviously, right? Sure. But so what are we going to treat as a serious idea versus t- total wing nuttery? Right. And no. you scoop that thing in and you treat it like a real question to be answered. And uh, I don't know. I mean, totally. Well, so, yeah, I, 100% of because that was my first initial feeling. And then as, you know, we're sort of going through the all the feelings on this feed, somebody asked a question, what news value does this have? And I got to thinking about what would it actually take for, they, they do one or two of these verifies a night, I think. What would it take for that question to have been the question that bubbled up to the top? Were they getting from their actual, re- the people that are still watching the newscast, were there a hundred people asking about the 5G antenna in their masks? And maybe if they are, then maybe it actually has pretty high news value, at least for whatever demographic is to watching it, which gave me a chill down the back of my spine that I still haven't really gotten rid of. But well, and then do they believe it? Like the people who already believe that they're getting information from a place that starts with the you you can't believe the mainstream media, but they're putting 5G signals in your thing. So. No, I think that's an important question. If that if they're getting those questions and they answer it and some people get correct information out of that, then maybe that's good. But I I don't know. I'm, I'm <laughs> I mean, frustrated I, and I'm you know, we we interacted about the fact check recently. Yeah. 
And I don't know if I should introduce a new topic. Go for it. Let's just, you can yeah, let's cut just it all out, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you said something that at first I agreed with, and then I thought a little bit more, and now I'm not 100% sure I agree with. And I wonder, if we might have different, we might be at a different place in terms of uh, should we defund journalism or not, so to speak. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And um, I think some of those hallmarks of the system that's been unquestionably sort of biased toward white people are not necessarily in and of themselves without value or without potential in a, in a fairer world. So fact checking is one of those to me that I think, you know, has been used as a weapon by the whatever, by institutions, by the mainstream to sort of draw boundaries around what can and can't get in into the debate, into the conversation, what's considered normal or acceptable. And yet I still want to believe that there are some things that you just have to say, this is a fact. Some things you can't say that about, right? But some you can. So I think I, because I've come kind of full circle or not full circle, I've kind of done a complete 180 on like back when I was at the Inlander back when fact checking first became a thing. And one of the, one of the first places to do like a, have a dedicated fact checker was the, um, now the Tampa Bay times. But before that it was the St. Petersburg times or whatever, which is where Jake, the editor of the Inlander came from. And so he was like on oh, top I of this whole fact checking yeah. thing. He's like, look at what my old paper's doing. And the Tampa Bay times is a nonprofit. So it's not the traditional model either. It's actually the Tampa Bay times is a really interesting paper and it's run by the pointer Institute, I think. And the pointer Institute is looked at as like the, the top of the heap with like, um, journalistic ethics and stuff. And anyways, so I was like, yeah, that's actually really cool because, you know, this is like the Bush era truthiness. And they were, they felt like there were all these like weaselly little lies that got us into war. And if, if all we could do is just do the, do this fact checking thing and we could give people Pinocchios, then that somehow like that would hold power to account. I still think that if that would have been the way the world ended up working, it would have been great. Uh, I think my big thing about fact checking is that like a lot of the fact checkers, like Glenn Kessler at the Washington Post, like the number of times he gave three or four Pinocchios to Medicare for all stuff, like enough that I'm just like, I, I don't look at Glenn Kessler as an impartial source for giving me facts anymore. This is actually, this is ideology. It's not pure fact anymore. It's like if it was purely calling ball and strikes. There needs to be utility for that. But I also don't know if in a world where true where truths are diverging and, you know, famously Kelly Conway was talking about alternative facts, like people not only are working through completely different sets of premises, you know, they won't sort of come to the table and to say like, oh yeah, you're right. Hydroxychloroquine isn't good after all, <laughs> right. you know? No, I, I have this desire to be like, this is, this is the way it is. And it's not that way. And that you have to, <laughs> and Trump has made me just lose my mind in a lot of ways about, about that, about the way that our, it's probably futile to be like, I'm going to, we're going to correct that fact. And then people will know it's corrected. Right. That's not what the, that's not the way it works. Like some, a lot of people have just pre believed something else, you know, or they have a different fact in their mind, you know, whatever the first day, the crowd size, just, just the sort of collision over being asked to treat lies like they're one side of a two-sided argument. You know, at the worst, I just feel like, well, there's just no way out of it. Right. (laughs) What may our old systems aren't built for it and where we'll end up with something we can't can't control predict or control. Yeah. And, uh, well, and I almost wonder if, if the, what we're feeling about the lack of a matchup between what's, what our leaders are telling us is true and what we sort of live and breathe every day in our lives. Maybe that's what it felt like in the nineties 
when we were talking about super predators in the black community, you know, or crack babies or welfare queens. It's like yeah. one of those conversations I had with my dad about when he was, you know, say things like, I don't want my tax money going toward lazy people, not racialized in any sense, but when the welfare discussion was happening during the Clintons, like it took me until a couple of years ago to be like, I grew up in Chatteroy, Washington, where, where you were rich if you had a double wide trailer, right? There was, we grew up around tremendous poverty. And so when we had that conversation again, and now it's like, you know, he's a veteran and he gets his, uh, his social security, he gets screwed because he has a government, a little bit of a government pension, but he took the pension early. So it's not that big. I was like, how many of the poor folks we grew up around and we were, we were definitely among the poor folks. You talking about lazy people that didn't like, how many of those people did you actually know in your life? There was zero of them. So when I was, if I would have been, I don't know, maybe if I would have been in my dad's position as a guy in like his mid thirties, when we were having the changing welfare as we know it, Bill, I hope that I would have looked around and been like, I don't know any lazy poor people. All the poor people I know are working two or three jobs. The one guy that I know who's on complete welfare disability is because he got so thoroughly traumatized by his time in Vietnam. He was always on the verge of like multiple suicide attempts, my my friend's dad. And so I wonder if like what we're seeing now is what other communities have always felt when they like hear from their leaders, stuff that is so completely outside the truth that they sort of live every day. And yeah. I guess in using that example, it's like, I'm not even talking about black folks. Maybe I'm also just talking about poor folks too. I'm talking about everybody yeah. saying like that, that commons we were talking about earlier was a very, was kind of an elite commons. And maybe, maybe we're getting a taste of our own medicine. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think it's absolutely true that that was the case. If you, if you grew up in in Chicago or in these cities that the, that the right wing likes to sort of point to because they're, they have large populations of African-Americans and people of color. Yeah. You think about the way that LA was policed, you know, tanks, tanks going into homes to try to circle back a little bit. I mean, I just, we just have to try to have some empathy and awareness that you just see it over and over and over. The police are doing things to black people, to the bodies of black people, the way they handle their bodies that they would never do to white people. And I just know it. it. I know that so deep inside of myself when I watch those videos, when I see a kid in Miami a couple weeks ago who they put in the back of the car for jaywalking, yeah. cuffed up, who mouthed off to them then, and who they took out and threw to the ground. You just know they would not do that with a white kid. Yeah. You know it because unfortunately you can think through what that cop might consider the consequence of that act being. Absolutely. And that white kid, there's a better chance that white kid's parents are going to cost you your job and you feel no fear that those, that, that, you know, they did that to a a black girl in Texas in a bikini outside of a pool party. Again, she's being mouthy, but that's, that's all she was being was she was mouthing off to the cops and they were insisting on being obeyed took her to the ground in her bathing suit. I just don't think you would see that with a, with a white kid. You certainly wouldn't see it much, you know, and it's just over and over and over. It's so obvious to me and not obvious at all to a lot of other people that I hear from. And I wonder, and I don't want to get too self-congratulatory about it, you know, right. White people protest for not being able to go get their haircuts during the pandemic, you know? Yeah. And if that was happening on a regular basis, they'd be 
we live in a much different country than we do. Yeah. You know? All right. I've been trying to ask people, and this is a pretty heavy conversation. So what, what do you see that gives you hope right now? Well, this is a real pause. I am not stretching this out at all. Uh, Picture, if you can, a look of anguish on Sean's face. I think I get hope. Not quite yet. Okay, now. From my family. I get hope from my son and his friends. Huh. I get hope from as many ugly, stupid voices as there are in the world. There are many kind of beautiful, graceful, intelligent voices out there, too, right now. And um, I'm embarrassed to forget the name of the person who wrote the, the essay two weeks ago in the New York Times magazine about reparations. Yeah. I read an article like that, and, and that gives me hope. Not like, oh, okay, now we're going to do reparations. That's going to work. <laughs> so much as look at the strength of this argument. Yeah. And this argument's going to reach people and the needle's going to get moved. And I guess maybe where I find hope is when I remember that that's all the needle ever does really is a little move bit. a little bit. Yeah. But if the New York Times begins to write about race in a different way, in a more self-aware way, like the 1619 project, sure, which I felt like I learned a ton of stuff, again, that I should have known yeah. and was met with opposition on the right, but won the Pulitzer Prize and mm-hmm. um, overall reached a big audience and has influenced the way that institution's moving forward. Not perfect, but better maybe. And um, that influences everybody else in journalism. That influences the country. And I guess... It's not Obama who said it first, but I always think of it as Obama, the sort of bending the arc, oh, yeah. the bending the arc, arc of justice. Of the moral universe, yeah. yeah. And um, I don't always think that's true. You know, I sometimes think it's bending the other direction. Yeah. But when I see Black Lives Matter going up on the side of that building, Ginger's organizing, yeah. you know, I think that's louder, quote unquote, in our community than what the bishop says. Yeah. You know, that's going to sit there and it's going to, people are going to look at it and, You know, some people are going to say dumb, ignorant things about it. Um, Yeah. But a lot of people are going to see it for what it is, like um, a truth that we should all have a very easy time getting behind and a kind of expression of community. Like, if we can't say that, then then we are fucked. If we we can't say that with comfort, then, then, yeah. And maybe that is a way that we're getting a little bit more comfortable. Part of the reason I finally started this stupid podcast after years of thinking about it was I was seeing people after COVID, but before George Floyd being like, we can't return to business as usual because business as usual was really profoundly broken. And I don't, I don't necessarily want to go right back to work, working the way I was working, you know, whatever. And I've seen a similar thing in the way that people have quickly become advocates. The people that will jump in and be like, you know, this is why when we say Black Lives Matter and you say All Lives Matter, that's racist. And it's not just young folks, although it's a lot of young folks. It's the people like you're saying in your newsroom that are, uh, that have like came in with the voice they have and are demanding change on the one hand, but it's also a lot of (laughs) moms, you know, people that I would think of as moms, meaning they're actually maybe grandmas at this point, you know, because I'm an increasingly old dude. And it's like, yeah, okay. And then I've also heard that that's like, it's inadequate. That That is inadequate. You can't just topple statues when what we really need to do is empty prisons, right? And I think that's true. Like we, if we, if we stop with just like Mississippi changing its flag, but not looking at the contents of their prisons, that's, that will not be enough. Not even fucking close to enough. But 
if what we're seeing, if this is, it's not the tip of the spear, it's more like somewhere down the hilt where like the pit, the tip is still going for those, those real deep power places and further down the hilt, you're seeing, you know, our mothers and grandmothers and fathers and grandfathers or whatever people our age and older saying, no, 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 no. Sorry. I'm going to, this, it's actually a rear guard action. It's actually sweeping up the mess. Like you would, again, let's just keep using a war analogy because that's not problematic at all. But like that, if the culture wars are pushing forward toward, you know, decarceration, I'm seeing a lot of people being like, no, we're not going to put up with this all lives matter bullshit anymore. We're just not going to do it. Sorry. And it's not just one or two or three people jumping in to that fray and it's the same people and you see those same people just getting increasingly stressed out and discouraged. But I would often come to find these discussions and be like, okay, do I need to jump in? Because nobody's jumped in yet. And often now I find those conversations and people, there's already been a conversation happening around that. And that's like, maybe that's hope. I don't know. I don't know how much war, how many wars are being won on Facebook, but seeing more soldiers on our side in Facebook maybe means that minds are getting changed somewhere else. I don't know. I I think it's important. I think people speaking up, even if that's all they do, and there's a criticism of that kind of uh, virtue signaling, um, as they call it, I I still think that's better than nothing. And not that better than nothing is a good high standard, but I, I think that it's positive because, you know, our political reality is going to change and it's going to change slowly in response to the attitudes that people have. And those attitudes being expressed is how they go between, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's how it works. You know, the, everybody on the city council talked about how many emails they got. Absolutely. And, Just to be clear, Sean's talking about the email campaign to encourage city council to vote down the police contract. It actually looked like the contract might get approved, but then once it got voted down, a number of city council people went out of their way to say it was the volume of correspondence they got, like thousands of emails that helped persuade them. All that started probably on social media somewhere. It did, you know. I think so. So the distance between that and fixing that problem is pretty great. Like the distance between... (laughs) Uh, arguing over all lives matter toward decarcerating our prisons and like yeah. that's a that's a tall order and it's going to take time yeah. and it's going to take people kind of sticking with it right i had jack archer on the pod earlier and they talked about the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, has this pyramid of hate. I don't know if they came up with this but they have this really great graphic at the top. It's like lynching and genocide. It's supported on this base of dumb jokes, you know, the stuff we talked about earlier. You got to think that that works both ways, right? And so if the virtue signaling or the tone policing that's happening, it's not sufficient. But if it's eroding the base of support that allows the extrajudicial killing of black men to happen, if, it, if you're eroding that base, then that's got to be doing some good, yeah. I would hope. Yeah. If, if we believe that the pyramid is built on those little things then it makes sense that it can be crumbled by eroding those things. I would hope. Right? Yeah, me too. I mean, that's the, the very, you know, it's the basis f- for me thinking what's worth raising our voice. I mean, it's a different or, or to have this podcast or to yeah, write columns right. or, um, I mean, those are different. They're louder. Like my platform, I'm, is, I'm fortunate enough to have a platform that's outsized compared to, Facebook, but right. it's all p- 
part of it. All the voices are part of what the community is saying about something. And yeah. I think there's reason to be hopeful. You know, I also hear from people of color who are like, a lot of people seem to be waking up to some things that I've noticed for a long, long time in my right. life. I'm sure that it's frustrating. It has to be frustrating. And I think, yeah. oh, so Jim Frank, I don't know Jim all that well, but Jim Frank posted something on Twitter in response to something I put up connecting this to zoning. And uh, there was a great essay op-ed in the New York Times by the former mayor of Milwaukee who wrote a similar thing, which is, these are all Black Lives Matter yard people resisting multifamily, affordable housing. Inclusionary zoning, right? And, um, you know, and I think what Jim tried to do up up on 29th there at the... Yeah. I forget 29th and whatever it was. Or no, it's uh, Southeast, right? Yeah. Yeah. 29th and Southeast, which I can't say I'm deeply knowledgeable about that situation. So maybe I'm, but, but it seemed to me like a pretty typical, uh, we we don't want apartments in our neighborhood. It's nimbyism. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, if you, if you, if you have a black lives matter or you, you have the hate has no place here sign in your yard you should at least recognize that the disparity between black and white wealth in this country means that there's a reason you don't have a lot of black families south of 29th in Spokane, Washington. And that's structural and it starts all the way at the bottom. And so you saying, I don't want apartments in my neighborhood is also akin to saying, I don't want black people in my neighborhood. And you can't, you cannot fucking escape that even right. if that's not what's in your it's heart. It's like talking about welfare, like the way you were talking about exactly. welfare. Very often welfare is coded language um, for black people on welfare. Yeah. Right. And especially if it comes from the West. Good God. Right. Well, but, and that's where I almost feel like there's a moment and maybe here's where we got a little bit more hope for myself too. Cause like I was able, I was able to completely strip all race out of the conversation I had with my dad about welfare. Cause again, it wasn't, it wasn't poor black folks I was talking about because everybody in Chatteroy, Washington and Elk, Washington is white. So it was really and my dad's a person of color. He's half Mexican. So like that was, it wasn't really even about that, but you can have conversation. That's what maybe we need to start as much as I agree with everything you said around centering like the specific harm that's been done to black people. It's like, it was part of the reason that black lives matter is so important is that, and I can't remember, I need to, now I'm the one that's going to need to look up names, but there's this, the, 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 the collective of like black feminists that's, coined intersectionality in the seventies. We're talking about the reason we're fighting and they were, they happened to be, um, GLBT folks. It was a collection of, of, uh, black lesbians who coined this term was like when, when black women are free, everybody's going to be free because they're the most oppressed through these intersecting and enmeshed, you know, oppressions. They are not just racially oppressed. And in the case of LGBT folks, they were their sexual orientation. they also tend to be the poorest people amongst us, which that's its own sort of oppression. Poverty is an oppression. And so I do think that one of the ways, and I don't know how to do this exactly, like we've got to like get poor white people involved in this by by saying like, no, when we say Black Lives Matter, we're actually talking about you too. We're talking about people who live under these these forms of oppression. And I don't know how to get there exactly. Because oftentimes they hear the, the opposite, which is, oh, I'm going to, and this is a meme that I've seen all over the place. And because I come directly from communities like this, I'm like, I don't know how to fight this meme where... One particular dude I went to high school with will say, I just worked a 16 hour day and I'm a, and I'm a single father and now I got to go home and take care of my kid. 
I don't know what I'm going to do with all this white privilege. Right. And there's, there's actually a grain of truth to that guy's that, that individual experience is brutal. No, I, I just don't know what to do about that. Cause like I actually, that guy, at least in high school, that was, that person was a very kind hearted person and he's eaten shit his whole life. As far as I can tell, he's not had, you know, a string of wins. It seems like he's working a pretty brutal job and his life, his situation at home is tough. Is it, is it his job to figure this shit out? You know? So it's like, we're, we're calling comfortable white people to account. What do we, what do we, can we demand of like dirt poor white people? I don't know. And that's a question I honestly don't have. An, and I even feel a little gross asking the question. Although I know a lot of those folks. Yeah. No, I do too. And I, there was a time that I had a more forgiving attitude about that than I have lately. Once again, it's just so much for me comes down to the president and the people that I hear out there now, in my own life, people I went to school with, very outspoken supporters of the president, often just as wrong as could be about whatever it is they're talking about, whatever the issue is. Um, and I mean wrong about the, just the facts of it, you know, believing any kind of crazy thing that comes their way and disbelieving anything that comes from a place that you should actually not necessarily just believe unquestionably, but at least treat as more credible than all oh, those university scientists. What do they know? They're, they're in it for the, uh, <laughs> they're getting rich off the COVID. It's yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There are often people whose lives have been harder than mine. If they, you know, and it would be good to have some forgiveness toward them, I guess. But I've found it harder to not blame the people who sit underneath some of the some of the worst attitudes. The, the, the people for whom appeals to bigotry seem to work, whether they themselves yeah. would, you know, once again would say, I'm, they'd say, I'm not racist. I don't, I'm not racist. I, I don't have white privilege because my life is hard, whatever. They don't. Right. Um, I do feel more and more like you got to get your act together. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's not a nice, uh, and it's maybe it's not fair, you know, maybe it's a, an elitist way to look at it. But um, I do find it frustrating that there's a lot of susceptibility to yeah, just bullshit, just stuff that it seems to me shouldn't be that hard to figure out is not right. Hmm. Again, that's more argumentative than productive, though. Yeah, it's it's a really tough uh it's a tough place to land because I, I find myself not having it's one. I'm thinking of one guy in particular, but I'm it's it's not I, I see it enough that it's like made a, sort of nested in my brain somewhere. It's like, what do we do about people like that? Yeah, um, because it doesn't seem entirely unfair. It doesn't seem it doesn't seem. Hey, look, it's my turn to not know what to say. Fair. I don't know if it does or not, but it doesn't, it, that's my, I'm just, I'm gonna have to cut this whole fucking segment out, but <laughs> I don't even know how to talk about it yet. I don't even know how to talk about it, but I don't think that guy has had the luxury of sitting around and thinking as much as I've had. Yeah. Not by a long shot. Right. And that is, I, that is true of everybody I just spoke of as well. Yeah. And so I don't, but at the same time, sure. Like when, when the moment arrives 
and the world changes and you don't change, how much, how much culpability is on your shoulders and how much do you have, do you get a pass? And if you do give those people a pass, do they end up coming around or do they just end up being everybody's racist grandpa? You know what I mean? Like, I don't, what's at the end of that road? So I just, I honestly don't know, man. Well, it does, you know, there's stuff in our system that's going to screw that guy over. That's going to screw over people of color worse. And it's hard when you're already, you know, getting a raw deal to maybe open up your heart to the, the raw deal other people are getting to, or to being told that, to thinking that you're being told that you're, you're not getting a raw deal. But right. The, the economy, the, the government, it's all set up in ways to create more poor people and to throw obstacles and disadvantages into their lives. Almost like that's the goal. Yeah. Um, Let's make it impossible for someone to get a good education and get out of that. Right. Let's make it impossible for people to earn a kind of living. They can just have a kind of a decent life like a working person might have had 50 years ago. Yeah. You just let's bankrupt people for getting sick. Let's, let's cut all these programs to help people. So, so the people who do nothing but, uh, earn returns off of the money they already have, yep. pay less into the system. Right. It just, anyway. Well, we kind of got to hope there for a second and then we sort of spiraled <laughs> back into despair, but <laughs> I don't, I don't go for that hope stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this is a really good conversation, man. Uh, thank you so much, Sean Vestal for coming on range. Uh, you've seen his face in the, the spokesman review, whether you get the spokesman review or not, because your face pops up on, uh, uh the social media sharing. Gotta fix that. I got to fix it. I keep <laughs> asking somebody at the paper to get that f- big fat face. <laughs> Put something else in there, please. And they're like, well, all you got to do is this. I'm like, no, you're not talking to the right guy. I can't do that. Anyway, uh, well, thanks so much for coming on, Sean. Thank Appreciate you for it. having me. Enjoyed it. Dang dude. Sean Vestal, Leah Satilli, two of the brightest journalistic minds in the Pacific Northwest or anywhere. I want to thank both of them for letting me take a combined like four hours of their time to have these conversations. I really, really appreciate it. You can find Leah's writing at High Country News and a bunch of other places and also on her Substack, which is linked in the show notes. And you can find Sean's writing, as always, at the Spokesman Review and his fiction at, say, Auntie's Bookstore, where everything he writes wins like big national awards. I'm not exaggerating. He's won a lot of awards and it's kind of sickening that he can be both this good at journalism and this good at uh, fiction as well. So that's fun. I think if there's any one big takeaway for me from both these, the second half of both these conversations, it's... The immense work and care that it takes to do good, ethical, thoughtful journalism on the one hand, and then how also institutions need to be more mindful than probably ever, or certainly than they've ever been, about creating opportunities and then creating space for diverse voices to join the profession, such as it is. I think that's all I got. Have a nice week, everyone.